0: will be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. I'm grateful for uh, Brandon Remus. Brandon serves as our director of Christian Challenge. He will be preaching this morning. Uh, having heard this message already, I know that you will be challenged and encouraged, and so I look forward to what the Lord will share with you through him. Um, just like last week, we will be videoing a QA. and a Uh, immediately after this gathering that you who are here in the room will be able to view later on YouTube. So if you have questions, you can text them to this number that's here on the screen, 480-359-1916. You might save that in your phone. We'll be using that each week. If anything comes up during the message that you'd like to ask Brandon about, or perhaps a verse that he couldn't spend time on, just given the volume of material we're covering, Shoot a text to that message, uh, that, uh, that phone number, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to many of those in the Q&A following the gathering this morning. Would you warmly welcome Brandon as he comes to share?
1: Uh, thanks for that welcome, church. Uh, thanks for being here, worshiping together, and also want to welcome everybody who's tuning in online. Thank you. Does God love all nations or just one? I think this is a question many people ponder as they read their Bibles, especially as they work through the Old Testament and see how God interacted with the Jews. I've personally even heard people claim that the God of the Bible is racist why would someone think that? Could that be true? Consider with me some of their claims. In the Old Testament, God chose a specific people, the Israelites, from among among all the other peoples of the earth. He told them that they were his special people and that he was their God. He gave them laws and rules to set them apart from all the other nations. When God brought the Israelites into Canaan, he told them to kill all the men, women, and children from the other nations inhabiting the land so that the Israelites could take it. When the Israelites settled the land, God had more commands for them. He told them not to intermarry with the other nations. So severe was this that at one point in the Old Testament, a Jewish man brings a Gentile woman into the camp and a priest kills both of them with a spear. Many of the Jews in Jesus' own day had a decided opinion about this matter as well. Consider the Israeli view of the Samaritans, who were thought to be second class, despised, and were segregated for the simple reality that they were half-blooded Jews. And full-blooded Gentiles were worse. In Jewish eyes, if you were a Gentile, you were neither loved nor chosen by God. The Jews viewed everything the Gentiles did as unclean, from the foods they ate to the culture they lived in. A Jew would not come into the house of a Gentile. He wouldn't invite a Gentile into his own home. He wouldn't sit at a table and eat a meal with him. Fellowship was strictly forbidden with Gentiles. And when a Gentile chose to follow God and become a Jew, the Jews actually made them wash themselves because they were considered unclean, dirty people. So as we consider the things that god commanded the jews and the way the jews extrapolated that and interacted with the gentiles we can understand why some would ask does god really love all people is god a racist god does he love all the nations or just one our passage today explores this question and it seems strange that we should be in a passage such as this, especially with all the tension in our culture today. Um, I will attempt to say nothing more and nothing nothing less than what I believe this passage is telling us. And yet, I feel that Scripture has a very applicable and perhaps even stinging message for us today. So while I would not normally choose a passage that could be so confrontational, God knows better than me, and he planned that we should be here today. So I hope this will be helpful to us all as we consider God's word this morning. Our passage begins where we left off last week. So as Chuck said, we're going to be in Acts 9. We're starting in verse 32, and we're going to go all the way to 1118. So we have this huge chunk of scripture. Because we are covering such a large section, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing. Uh, So I'd love for you to flip there, and we won't read the whole passage, but try to keep track and follow along as we go. If you remember last week, we learned of the conversion of Saul, the persecutor of Christianity, turned Christian. Uh, God worked through Ananias and Saul and brought these men together and brought Saul into the company of Christians. Well, today we shift our focus back off of Saul and back to Peter, uh, the apostle, who we find traveling outside Jerusalem, performing miracles and preaching the gospel. This chunk of chapter 9, to the end, details two particular miracles— That Peter performs, and I want to try and summarize these for you. First, we find Peter in a place called Lydda where he meets Aeneas. We don't get much info about Aeneas other than that he's been paralyzed for seven years. Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And Aeneas is healed. The people in Lydda see the incredible power of the gospel and they turn to the Lord. Well, while Peter's in Lydda, the disciples from the neighboring town Joppa send for him. Because a woman named Tabitha has died. We know from the text that Tabitha, or also called Dorcas, was a woman full of good works and that she was a widow. So Peter goes into her house where the people are mourning and he sends them out. And in Jesus-like fashion, he says, Tabitha, arise. And she's resuscitated back to life. The people in Joppa hear of this miracle and they too turn to the Lord, just like the people in Lydda. Something to note from these miracles, first, is how Peter speaks and works in a fashion that parallels Jesus' ministry on earth. When Peter heals the paralytic, he says, Rise and make your bed. And we're immediately reminded of Jesus when he heals the paralytic in Matthew 9 and says, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. Likewise, when Peter heals the widow saying, Tabitha, rise, we're reminded of Jesus when he heals Jairus' daughter. And he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. So right away, Luke's reminding us that Peter has apostolic authority and the power of Jesus working through him. Perhaps Luke's reminding us of this because what Peter's going to do in this next chapter that we're going to read is so unexpected that he would have to have the authority of Jesus or no one would believe him. And so chapter 9 ends with Peter at the coastal city of Joppa, and this sets up the main portion of our text today. So, uh, last week we see God work through Saul and Ananias, two men, and he brings about this miraculous conversion. This week we get a similar story in chapter 10, as we see two men, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and Peter, a Jewish apostle, and God will bring about another miraculous conversion. So let's read 10, 1 through 29. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he began, became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there, were, came a voice from, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? So we have Cornelius and Peter in this passage. Two men cut from very different cloths. Consider first how different they are. The text says Cornelius is a Roman centurion and part of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort was a group of soldiers who were made up of Roman volunteers. They were soldiers from Italy and especially loyal to the Roman Empire. So Cornelius was himself a true Roman, a soldier, and more than that, a centurion. Centurions were put in command of 100 men and made five times the income of a normal soldier. So Cornelius was also a wealthy man, a man of influence. To any nationalistic Jew, Cornelius would be seen as the enemy. He was their conqueror. Meanwhile, we have Peter, who was a civilian. Peter was by trade a poor fisherman before being called by Christ to be a disciple. He was a devout Jew. He would have known the laws of the Jews and how they interact with the Gentiles. He may not have had the same anger towards the Romans as some of the Jews, but he certainly wouldn't have loved his conquerors either. And I think from the text we see that Peter does seem to have some sort of internal reservation, maybe even prejudice against the Gentiles, which is why God tells him, don't hesitate when you see that the messenger that I sent is a Roman soldier and two Roman servants. So we have two men, a rich man and a poor man, a soldier and a civilian, a Roman and a Jew. Enemies. And yet, God was about to break ages of discrimination between these two men who should never be talking to each other by the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Perhaps the strangest part of this section, though, is Peter's vision. So let's think about that for a minute. He's praying when God shows him this sheet descending from the sky with all sorts of animals. And God tells Peter to kill and eat And Peter's horrified by this. He says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. As we know, Peter has a history of saying no to God. And in response, God tells Peter three times, don't call common what I have made clean. What God's doing here is he's abolishing the Old Testament food laws. Jews were not to eat anything unclean. This included animals like pigs or vultures because they ate dead things. As part of God's holy people, the Jews were supposed to be holy, This involved a regimented diet that reflected that, amongst other things. But when Christ came, he fulfilled the law and no longer required sacrifices or Jewish rituals. So the moral laws of God continue, but the ritualistic portions of the law pass away. Well, here, God breaks down the food laws, but he also does something else. God uses this vision to begin breaking down Peter's prejudice against the Gentiles. Let's look at the text and see how God does this. First, we see Peter doesn't understand the vision. He doesn't know what it's about. He's perplexed. God begins helping Peter understand the vision by connecting it to these Gentiles who are seeking him. I can only imagine what Peter saw and what he thought when these men came a Roman soldier, two Roman servants. These are the men you sent me to go with, Lord. And God knew he'd be surprised, which is why he told Peter don't hesitate. And I can only imagine what it was like as he traveled with them. And he heard about Cornelius, a man who really did love God. Who really did try to do right by the Jews. And to hear about this vision that Cornelius had. And then Peter's thinking about his own vision. Maybe God can use the Gentiles. Maybe there's something bigger going on here. And by the time Peter gets to Cornelius' house, we see that. God has changed his views on some things because he plainly says in verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So we see God working on Peter's heart. And Peter asks Cornelius then, why did you send for me? And this is where things get good. So let's read some more. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying it in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear that you have been, all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, "Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And as for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know." What happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. What an incredible moment in the history of the church. I can only imagine what Peter thought as he heard Cornelius' story and realized God really is working in the Gentiles. And then he turns and sees all the faces of these Roman people, of Cornelius' family and friends, who have never heard the gospel and are waiting for him to share this news with him. Can you see their expectant faces, church? And then to see Peter finally understand what's happening. And he begins his sermon overwhelmed with compassion, saying, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him is acceptable to God. And so God converts Peter. Not to Christianity, but to seeing that the Gentiles are included in the plan of God. Peter then preaches the gospel to these people. As he's speaking, the Spirit falls on them. And we get this amazing parallel account to Pentecost as we see God has expanded his kingdom not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And Peter with joy says, they have the Spirit just like we do. These people need to be baptized. And what God does here is shows that his people are no longer marked by circumcision, but by the Spirit in their hearts. Do you realize how significant this moment is? My guess is that most of us here don't have a Jewish heritage. Most of us are Gentiles. If you're Asian, European, South American, African, if you have descent from any of those places, you can have eternal salvation in Christ today because God brought salvation to the Gentiles. Confirmed through Peter and Cornelius. You don't have to follow the Jewish law. You don't have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And you can do that because of what God made known in this passage. So I come back to our question from the outset of the sermon. Does God love the nations? Yes. Absolutely yes. There's no doubt God loves the nations. And when we look at his plan across biblical history, we see this. In Abraham, he said all the nations will be blessed, in including the Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus through Rahab and Ruth, who were Gentiles. And even through the life of Jesus, when we see his care for the Samaritan woman, for the Syrophoenician woman, when he heals the centurion's servant. And finally, in his command to the disciples to go through all the earth, All the Earth making disciples of every nation. Indeed, as we look at this passage, we see that God loves the nations. I think the issue, though is not that God doesn't love the nations. It's that his people don't. God loves the nations, but His people. Do not. We've already heard of the traditional view of the Jews and even seen some of Peter's own hesitancy in bringing this gospel to the Gentiles, thinking that the Gentiles could be a part of God's plan. But I think there's more in this text that shows us this traditional heart of the Jewish believer. Shortly after this miraculous exchange with the Gentiles, Peter heads back to Jerusalem, and let me read to you what happens there. This is the first couple verses of chapter 11 I'm going to read. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised and ate with them. The first response Peter hears after this miraculous work of God is not, amen, God is bringing more people into the kingdom of God. It's no. Peter gets criticized. Peter, you went to those unclean people and you ate with them. What are you doing? The gospel is for us, Peter, not for them. God chose our people, Peter, not those people. To further illustrate this, I think there's a really interesting parallel in this text worth considering. It's almost as if God anticipated this objection and carried the hand of Luke to make distinct comparisons between Peter and the prophet Jonah. Allow me to explain. Jonah, if you remember, was a prophet of the Old Testament commissioned by God to take the message of repentance to the Ninevites, who were Gentiles. Jonah refused because he thought the Ninevites didn't deserve the mercy of God. In fact, he was so bitterly angry that God would give mercy to the Ninevites that he took a ship from Joppa to get away from them. Well, God got him back to Nineveh, and he preached his message of repentance. But even after he delivered the message, he sat outside the city in spite, hoping that God would rain destruction on these people. Turns out there are a ton of parallels between Jonah and Peter. For starters, maybe this isn't even a parallel, it's just plain ironic. Uh, Peter's real name is Simon Bar-Jonah. means Simon, son of Jonah. There are more parallels, though. First, Peter and Jonah are both uniquely commissioned to take a message to the enemies of Israel, the Gentiles. Both men are given this commission from the city of Joppa. If you remember, that's where Peter was when he had his vision. That's where Jonah was when he heard his vision and took a ship to get away. Both men initially reject the vision God gives them. Peter, until he's told three times not to call what God has made clean unclean. And Jonah, until he spends three nights in the belly of a whale. Both men also witness the repentance of the Gentiles as a response to God's message. And finally, Both receive critique, backlash from their message to the Gentiles by traditional Jewish prejudice. Jonah in his own anger and desire for God to kill the Ninevites and Peter in the traditional Jewish criticism he receives from his brothers when he goes back to Jerusalem. The main difference between these two men is that Peter's heart is changed. Jonas is not. As we consider this parallel and the response of Jew, the Peter's Jewish opponents in chapter 11, I think the text begs the question, What kind of people will we be? God has always desired people from all nations to hear the gospel and be saved. His plan of salvation included everyone from the beginning. But does ours? Is your heart Christian? broken for all peoples as God's is? Maybe you hear this message and you think, I'm amicable to all people. I want all people to know God, and I don't discriminate, so this doesn't apply to me. But I don't know if it's that easy. Ask yourself some questions. Do I neglect or avoid certain kinds of people and gravitate to sharing the gospel life with others who are more like me? Do I avoid interacting with people who look different than me and act different than me? Christian, do you move towards the international student when you see them in our church or do you turn a blind eye and keep walking? In my research this week, I came across this excerpt and I wanted to share it with you. Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England he was deeply touched by the reading of the gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. If Christians have caste differences also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. What a tragedy. I know no one in our church would send somebody away like that. And for that, I am so thankful. But, might we fail to engage a person like that? Might they walk into our own church seeking the message of salvation and see American people talking to American people and never be seriously engaged as an outsider by the community? If so, then we are effectively no better than those ushers. And I think this goes beyond race. Not just the international student, not just people of different color. But what about others that the church considers the unclean of society? The Jews thought the Gentiles were unclean. Well, Christian, who is unclean to you? What do you do when you encounter those from the LGBTQ community? How do you treat the Democrat or the Republican? What about the homeless? Man, when I considered my own life this week, I realized the hypocrisy. I said, Brandon, who do you consider to be the unclean of society? The homeless, absolutely. I blatantly avoid talking to them. When I see them, I tell myself, oh, someone else will go talk to that person. I'm going to go talk to Shane Wolf because he's like me. I gravitate towards people just my, like myself. And why do I do this? when I consider deep down I realize I don't feel like that homeless person is worth my time I would never have said that out loud I probably wouldn't even have realized that I felt that way if I had not analyzed my attitude this week but when I really think about it I don't understand the homeless community and I haven't had a desire to put in the effort to understand them I'm no better than the circumcision party, no better than Jonah, and no better than the ushers who told Gandhi that this place called church wasn't for people like him. So Christian, who in your community do you see as unclean? It's easy to wag our fingers and shake our heads at Jews in Jesus' day, but what if we are not so different from them? Now I hope as you hear this, you're taking account of your own soul. You're considering if this really is you too. Maybe so, maybe not. But I do wanna make a clarification in ending our time together. If you're not listening, please listen now. This is not a message on how we all need to go out and try to be less racist or less prejudiced. This is not a message about how we should go in our own strength and try to make ourselves better people and love the outsider. If that's what you walked away with this Sunday, then I've failed you. The strength of the believer to love the outsider never came from human effort, but from gospel power. If we consider Peter's change of heart, it's not because he suddenly realized his sin. It was like, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to try harder to like the Gentiles. Certainly, it involved effort on Peter's part, but the text is clear. In verse 28, it says, God has shown Peter no person is common or unclean. In verse 34, God shows no partiality, and that's why Peter now says, I see there is no partiality for those who are acceptable. And when the Gentiles come to faith, it's because God sent the Spirit to save them. God changed Peter's heart, not Peter. And God can change your heart too, better than you ever could. So how do we allow God to change us into a church who loves all peoples like God and desires all nations to know him? I think it starts in recognizing that we were once unclean also. That before Christ's mercy, we were far from God and our best was dirty rags. And yet Jesus came to us He washed us in his blood and made us pure sons and daughters. We were once unclean, but God made us clean. When we recognize that we're not so different from the outsider, the gospel then begins to change us. Peter goes on to recount this whole story to his Jewish brothers in an attempt to explain himself. The rest of our verses in chapter 11 speak to this. And at the end of his defense, he says this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God gave the Gentile the gift of the Spirit Just like the Jew. And God changed Peter's heart. And, believer, God will change your heart too. Because the kingdom of God is for all peoples, from all nations. So, my encouragement is start here. Don't beat yourself up for past wrongs, don't try in your own strength to change your heart. But pray that God would break your heart for the outsider, for the homeless, for the LGBTQ for the international student, for those who are different than you. Pray that God would give you a love and a desire to go outside your comfort zone, to speak with people who are unlike you, because God loves the nations, and he wants his people to love the nations too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace you saved the Jew and the Gentile. And Lord, as you say through Paul, now there's no...